0: Please turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 we'll be reading through verses 1 through 16. This passage is arguably one of the best known passages in all of Scripture. Not only do we as believers know John 3 specifically John 3:16 but generally unbelievers will know John 3:16 as well this verse is often plastered on billboards you'll see it on signs at sporting events everybody knows what John 3:16 says and yet it is a passage that is still worth our time and attention this morning so please follow along with me as I read John 3, verses 1 through 16. I'll be reading from the ESV. This is God's holy, inspired, and errant, infallible word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. It's a popular phrase. It's a phrase that I used quite often in my past career. Before coming to RPTS, Before going to seminary, I spent 13 years in the landscaping industry. And I would train crew members how to use various pieces of equipment. And one of them was a chainsaw, where we often did tree work. And as I was training these men on how to use a chainsaw, I would say familiarity breeds neglect. The idea is, as you start off operating a chainsaw, perhaps you've had this experience yourself, You hold it, you feel its weight, you start it, you hear its sound, you see the chain rotate back and forth, and you know that this chainsaw could harm you. You know that it could cause great damage to your body or to someone else's body if you don't handle it properly. And as men would first start operating these chainsaws, they would be very careful, very cautious. They would go very slowly. But the more familiar they became with this piece of equipment, the more neglectful they became. And I would tell them familiarity breeds neglect, and I would show them the scars on my body from when I cut myself with a saw, or talk about the broken bones that I had from being knocked out of a tree or having branches land on me because I was neglectful. Familiarity breeds neglect. We know this passage well. It's a familiar passage to us and yet we can often neglect it. Yes, God does tell us that His Word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And yet perhaps we're tempted to think that John 3.16 has grown a bit dull for us because we know it so well. But the Word of God is not dull. It is sharp. And this text calls us to, reminds us of the necessity of our new birth. It tells us that you must be born again. We see in this text the necessity of your new birth, the cause of your new birth, the effect of your new birth, and the reason for your new birth. The necessity, the cause, the effect, and the reason. First, the necessity of your new birth. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Before we get into the meat of this text, I'd like to back up and read a section from chapter 2. As you're looking in your text, you'll see that chapter 2 is talking about the uh, miracle at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And the text goes on, and this is the text where Jesus comes and he kicks out the money changers from the temple because they've turned a house of prayer into a house of thieves. And then we read in verses 23 this. This is chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus... On his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1 Now there was a man, Nicodemus. This man, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus. But what this text in chapter 2 tells us is that Jesus knows that there are some who believe in him. They see that he is obviously from God based on the signs and the wonders that he is doing, but they don't understand that he is God, that he is the God-man come in the flesh. And what this text tells us is that Jesus did not believe their so-called belief. Now there's this man, Nicodemus, who does have some sort of belief in Jesus. And he comes to Jesus. The text tells us that he is a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling class of the day. He's a teacher of Israel. He's a well-respected man. He's a wealthy man. He's an intelligent man. Now we might think of Nicodemus like we think of R.C. Sproul. Someone who knows the Scriptures well. Someone who is able to teach and expound them well. And this is how Nicodemus was viewed in his day. And this man, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus. And the text tells us that this man came to Jesus by night. When the sun had set. When it was dark. When no one could see him. Now many of you have heard that This is Nicodemus trying to be sneaky. Come and see Jesus incognito so that the other members of the Sanhedrin would not see him. So that the other Jews would not see him. And likely this is true. Remember, Nicodemus is no fool. He's a smart man. He understands that his reputation may be at stake by even talking to Jesus. But as we think about John, the author of this Gospel, the author of the three epistles, the author of the book, of Revelation. And as you read through his corpus of literature, that is, all that he has written, over and over again you'll see him talk about light and you'll see him talk about darkness. And if he's speaking of darkness, he's saying those who are in the darkness are not spiritually enlightened. Those who are in the darkness are not born again. Those who are of the darkness do not know and love God. And yet, those who are of the light are children of light. So not only do we see Nicodemus being prudent and coming at night, but the way that John is structuring this passage and his other writings, we see that he's giving us an insight then into the state of Nicodemus' heart at this point. That Nicodemus is an unregenerate man. But he comes to Jesus, and in verse 2 he says, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he says we. He doesn't say I. So perhaps he is a representative of some curious members of the Sanhedrin or some curious members of the Jewish party. And he's coming to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, teacher, it's obvious to us that you're from God. As we look at you and we watch the things that you're doing and the things that you're saying, it's obvious to us that it's impossible for anyone to do the things that you're doing unless God has sent you. And Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus as a peer-to-peer, or maybe even as he being a member of the Sanhedrin over Jesus. Saying, We know that you're from God. You're, you're probably a prophet. It's probably good that, that you come and you join us if God is truly sending you. Come and and be with us, Jesus. I think Nicodemus is trying to put himself in Sanhedrin over Jesus. And Jesus says some striking words to him. Imagine you are Nicodemus. You're this affluent teacher. You've worked hard all your life studying the Scriptures. People look up to you. People come to you with their questions. And Nicodemus says to God, it's obvious to us that you're from God. And Jesus says in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. How would that fall on you? You come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, we know that you're from God. We know all about God. We know the teachings of Scripture. And Jesus says, you don't know anything. You have no clue what you're talking about. You can't even see the kingdom of God, that which you are speaking of, unless you're born again. Paul picks up on this idea of someone who is blind, who is unable to see the kingdom of God because of their spiritually darkened state. When he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, he says, The natural person, that is the person who is not born again, the person who is in the darkness, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is... Men and women who are not enlightened by the Holy Spirit are not able to truly see the kingdom of God. They are not truly able to understand the Word of God. They are not truly able to love the Lord God. And this text is telling us it doesn't matter the amount of theological aptitude you may have. If you are not born again, you are in darkness. It doesn't matter if you said the sinner's prayer. If you're not born again, you are in darkness. It doesn't matter if you've been born into the church if you are not born again. Jesus, the whole reason that He has come, the reason that He took on flesh was to proclaim this kingdom of God. Luke tells us in his Gospel that Jesus says the whole reason He came was to preach and proclaim about the kingdom of God. This kingdom that Nicodemus cannot see, cannot know, that you, apart from Jesus, cannot see and cannot know. So the new birth is necessary for you to even see and understand the kingdom of God. So then what is the cause of your new birth? We see this in verses 4 through 14. This is the largest section of the passage, so likely we'll spend most of our time here. But Jesus has just said this to Nicodemus. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is quite perplexed by this statement. Be born again? What are you talking about? In verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born He's thinking in earthly terms as Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms, of spiritual realities. And he's saying, Jesus, what you're saying, being born again, it is physically impossible. It cannot happen. Perhaps he's thinking about himself as he's likely an older man and his mother who has likely passed away. Jesus, this is impossible. I have no idea what you're talking about. This morning, when I was getting ready for church, I was, had my toothbrush and my toothpaste, and I opened up the toothpaste bottle, and likely because of the pressure in the plane, when I opened the, the bottle, the toothpaste just exploded all over the, the sink and all over my hand. And it didn't matter how much I tried to take that toothpaste and put it back into the bottle. It just wouldn't happen. And that's how Nicodemus is thinking. You can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle. Every time you brush your teeth now and you can't put the toothpaste back in the bottle, think about the necessity of your new birth. But Jesus says to him, you're missing the whole point, Nicodemus. He says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirits, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And much ink has been spilled on this phrase, this term, being born of water and spirit. Many commentators have written on this. And there are three main views of being born of water and spirit. The first view says Jesus is saying water and spirit. So water is involved with baptism. Spirit is involved with regeneration. So what they say is perhaps Jesus is saying that you have to be baptized and then, you're born again. And this is the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. It's a doctrine that is not taught in Scripture. It's a, not, it's a doctrine that, that we reject. It's a doctrine that is heretical. And we know that this cannot be what Jesus is speaking about. And you can think of examples in Scripture where men and women have been redeemed and yet, they were not baptized. Baptized. You think of the thief on the cross as Jesus is there being crucified and there's one thief who's cursing and mocking him and there's another thief who sees Jesus, who sees how the soldiers have mocked him and derided him and they've beaten him and he says to Jesus, surely you must be the son of God. And remember what Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And this man passed into eternity and yet unbaptized. You think of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. You remember Peter is stationed in Joppa. He's up on the roof napping. And he has this dream where the sheet comes down and there's all kinds of unclean animals. And the Lord says to Peter, take up and eat. And Peter says, no. And this dream happens not once, not twice, but three times. And the Lord finally says to Peter, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. And all this time, the Lord is working in the heart of this man, Cornelius. And the Lord has told Cornelius to send his men to go get Peter. And as soon as Peter wakes up from this dream, these Gentile men knock on the door. And they say, are you Peter? We were told to come get you. And Peter goes with these men. He goes to Cornelius and he preaches the gospel to this Gentile man. And the Lord converts him, regenerates him, brings him about to new life. And Peter says, is there any reason why we would withhold baptism from him? And then this man is baptized. So Jesus cannot be talking about baptismal regeneration. Baptism is necessary for our new birth, but it does not because of our new birth. Another idea is that Jesus perhaps is speaking simply about the physical birth and the spiritual birth. Water is involved in physical birth. The spirit is involved in spiritual rebirth, so maybe that's what Jesus is speaking about. But I can't for the life of me see any reason why we would think that. The third, remember who Jesus is talking to. Remember that he's talking to Nicodemus. Remember that he's talking to a teacher of the law. Remember that Nicodemus, he should know the scriptures well. And so when he says spirit and water or water and spirit, it should be triggering in Nicodemus's mind texts in the Old Testament. Much like if I were to say to you, may the force be with you, your mind would immediately go to Star Wars. That's how we've been conditioned. And as Jesus is saying, that which is born of spirit and water, Nicodemus' mind should have been so conditioned that he thinks about texts in the Old Testament that have this phrase. Jesus is likely referring then to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And I'll read it to you. And as I read it, hear water, hear cleanliness, hear spirit. This is what the prophet says in Ezekiel 36, 25 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is not speaking of two separate events, but he's speaking of that one event of regeneration. He goes on then in verse 6. And he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. This takes us then back all the way to the garden, where God has created the world in six days. He creates man, he creates woman, and he tells them to work and to keep, to guard and protect the garden he says, you can eat all of the fruit of the trees before you accept the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know how the story goes, how the serpent comes in, how he deceives Eve, and then Eve gives the fruit to her husband Adam, and Adam bites down on that fruit, sins and rebels against the Lord, is then kicked out of the garden. And we know then that in Adam's fall, we all fell. That through Adam's guilt, we are all guilty. We have his guilt imputed to us. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2, verses 1-4, through when he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of flesh are children of wrath. But that which is born of spirit is spirit. you think about Jesus, who is the new Adam, who is the second Adam, who is the one who has come the one who took on flesh, the one who was active in his obedience to the Lord and passive in his obedience as he suffered on the cross. You think of his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and now how his righteousness is then imputed to his people. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And Paul goes on in this same passage then to describe that. Remember, we were once children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. This idea of being born of the Spirit is not new in the Gospel of John. We're still early on in this Gospel, only chapter 3, but if you look back then at chapter 1, And you read that great prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But there's also this little passage in between that. In verses 12 and 13, when John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not children of wrath, but children of God. And then verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That our new birth, your new birth, is not wrought within us. It's not as if we said to ourselves, Self, I would like to be born, speaking of our physical birth, how much more than of our spiritual rebirth. That our spiritual rebirth is a result of the work of the Spirit himself. In verse 7 then, he continues, Jesus continues his discussion with Nicodemus. And you can imagine Nicodemus scratching his head as he's listening to these perplexing things that Jesus is saying to him. He's trying to follow along, and Jesus can read his face. And he says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. As you look at this verse, the English rendering of this verse does not do proper justice to the meaning of this verse. Because when Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, comma, that first you is a singular you. He's speaking specifically and directly to Nicodemus. But then that second you, that's a plural you, you must be born again. So it's as if Jesus is saying, do not marvel that I said to you, you all must be born again. As they say in the cell all y'all must be born again. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's saying the Sanhedrin must be born again. The disciples who are following him must be born again. Those who read this text must be born again. You here in this room, Jesus is saying, you must be born again. Nicodemus is still listening, still trying to follow along. And Jesus says in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying to Nicodemus, the Spirit, he does as he wishes. He moves as he wishes. He brings about regeneration in His people, as He wishes. You do not know where He comes from, you do not know where He goes, but you certainly see the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit. And you can think about Acts chapter 2. Remember Pentecost. Leading up to Pentecost, Peter and the disciples, and the 120 disciples who are with him, they're hunkered down in the upper room. Jesus has just ascended into the heavenlies. Jesus has told them, that you will go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here they are, hunkered down, hiding in the upper room. And the text tells us that the Spirit was poured out upon them like a rushing wind. And we see then Peter and the apostles give them that holy boldness to then go preach to those people at Pentecost. And we see 3,000 souls converted then because the Spirit moves as he wishes. And he's saying that to Nicodemus. The Spirit moves as he wishes. Now when Nicodemus first comes to Jesus, he doesn't ask him a question, he makes a statement. We know that you're from God. And Jesus answers him and he says what he says. You can't even see the kingdom of God. And he asks this question, "How? How can this be true? Well, then in verse 9, he asks another question. A very simple question. How can these things be? Jesus is whittling away at Nicodemus' intellect. Whittling away at everything Nicodemus thinks he knows. And I think you're starting to see then, in Nicodemus, the contractions of conversion take place in his own heart. How then can these things be? And Jesus answers him, Are you not the teacher of Israel? He doesn't say you're not a teacher of Israel, you're not one of many, but aren't you the preeminent teacher of Israel? And yet, Nicodemus, you do not understand these things. Speaking in earthly terms, how are you supposed to understand spiritual terms? Then he says something quite amazing, I think, in verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What he's saying to Nicodemus is, you cannot ascend to heaven and understand heavenly realities. You have to have someone from heaven descend to earth to be able to explain those heavenly realities. He's saying, Nicodemus, you are not able to enter into that heavenly realm, but Jesus, the Son of Man, the incarnate God, took on flesh and came from heaven and entered into his creation to be able to explain the things of God. And he says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's trying to teach didactically then to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is not understanding it. So Jesus then references a story to Nicodemus. And how often do we learn from stories? And he references what we read in Numbers 21. When the people of God were rebelling against the Lord, they longed for the cucumbers of Egypt, and they wanted to cast off the Lord who had redeemed them from that pagan land. And so the Lord's jealousy and anger burned hot, and he sent those fiery serpents then to Israel. These poisonous serpents who would sink their venom into the ankles of the Israelites and cause them to die. And as we read, the people then are rebuked, and they go to Moses and they plead to Moses, please intercede for us. Bring our requests and our petitions to the Lord that he may relent of his chastisement. And the Lord does this. And he tells Moses, remember, to build this serpent and place this serpent on a pole and raise that serpent up. So that when everyone who was bit by these fiery serpents, they had the venom coursing through their veins, they were able to look at that bronze serpent and be healed. And Jesus is saying that is referencing him. Jesus is saying, as the serpent was raised up, so must the Son of Man then be raised up. There are two musts in this passage. The first must is, we see is in verse 7, you must be born again. The second must is that the Son of Man must be raised up so that all who look on Him can be saved. That Jesus, through His work on the cross, is the one who is able to bring about your new birth. Jesus is the cause of your new birth. The Spirit is the one who then administers that new birth to you. And as you see the cause of your new birth, then notice the effects of your new birth. Very simply, we see this in verse 15. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying as the Son of Man is lifted up on that cross, and again as He bears the punishment of His people, as He is buried, sitting in the grave for three days, rising again, ascending to the Father. He accomplishes eternal life for all those who believe in Him. It's belief, it's present, it's active, it's ongoing. Jesus is speaking very clearly of saving faith. And we know what saving faith consists of. It consists of knowledge, understanding who Jesus is, what He says about Himself. It's assenting to those facts about Jesus. Not only knowing the facts of Jesus, but believing the facts of Jesus. And then trust, resting in those facts. Resting that Jesus' work, His person and work, is efficacious towards you. Jesus is calling you to saving faith. And notice that this is eternal life. This is not almost eternal life. This is not eternal life for as long as you remain in Christ, but it's eternal life because Christ remains in you. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. You've been born of an imperishable seed Through the word of God, you have eternal life because of your new birth. What then is eternal life? Well, Jesus simply says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is knowing who God is, is knowing who Jesus is, and how are you able to know that? Because of your new birth. Remember, those who are not born again cannot see the kingdom of God, cannot enter the kingdom of God, but those who are born again, those who the Spirit works inside of their hearts, who replaces the heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, gives you a heart of flesh, then you are able to know God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When you think about the new birth, Archibald Alexander, he wrote a book called Religious Experience. And he's speaking about the new birth, and he he gives an illustration about physical birth. And he talks about how one baby can be born, and if you have kids, multiple kids, you know that every experience is different, every child is different. And you can have one baby who comes out, who's screaming, full of life, kicking and wailing their arms, and everyone knows that little baby is here. That little baby has arrived. But then you can have another baby that's born. Comes out, heart is beating, the baby's breathing, but the eyes are closed. This child is still sleeping. And if you didn't know better, you might think, is this baby even alive? And yet, they are. And it's the tr- same is true then of physical rebirth. Perhaps you've seen this as someone is newly converted as they're born again and they they experience the joy of the Lord and they can't wait to be in the Scriptures. They can't wait to be in the church. They can't wait to sing the praises of God with the people of God. They're zealous for Bible study. They long to do evangelism and everybody knows that the Lord truly is at work in this person's heart. But then there's others of us who the Lord does bring about to new life who does give that heart of flesh, and yet it takes time then to develop those Christian desires, those joys that maybe this person experiences and everyone can see, but this person is a little bit more passive. The Lord is at work in both of them. As you're reading this text, perhaps you had the same question that I had. What about Nicodemus? What about this man, the Sanhedrin Jew? Was he born again? Was he truly a believer in Christ? As you look at this text, it may be hard to see. I think as you see his interactions with Jesus, his statement and then his questions, you're starting to see him, his mind changed, his heart changed. As you continue reading in the book of John, Nicodemus pops up two other times. He pops up in chapter 7. Again, the Jews, the Sanhedrin, they are upset with Jesus. They're furious with him. Jesus, who is claiming to be God, and they want to kill him. And we read in chapter 7 that Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, is defending Jesus. He's coming to his aid. But then he pops up again in chapter 19. (coughs) After Jesus has given up his spirit, and his body is lifeless on the cross, And you remember that uh, Simon, or Joseph rather, of Arimathea comes and he petitions Pilate to take the body of Jesus down and to bury him, to put him in his own family tomb. And Pilate grants him this request, but Nicodemus is right there with him. Nicodemus is bringing spices to the body of Jesus. And I think it seems fairly clear that Nicodemus was born again, that Jesus is at work even in the hearts of his enemies. And he's at work even in us. And the Lord is calling you then to believe and to have eternal life. That's the effect of your new birth. Finally and quickly then, what is the reason for your new birth? What's the reason that God decides to bring about new life in you? Is it that he looks through the corridors of time and he sees that you will have faith in him? And so that He comes and He brings about new life in you? Look at verse 16. This is the reason for your new birth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What is the reason for your new birth? Simply because... God and His benevolence and His goodness and His compassion and His mercy loves you and sends His Son for you. This is the reason for your new birth. So we've seen that your new birth is necessary to see and enter the kingdom of God. We've seen that the cause of your new birth is not something wrought within you, but it is a work of the Holy Spirit as He administers the sacrifice of Jesus to you. The righteousness of Jesus to you. We've seen that the effect of your new birth then is eternal life with Jesus. And we see that the reason for this new birth is because, because God loves His people. You must be born again.